Hello, and welcome to the OxCast, the podcast where we try to talk nerd topics like the BPL. I learned it by watching you, Dad. I'm Crispy Kraut. I'm Hellion. And I'm Kraut. Yes, we have a special guest tonight. I may never leave, unless they shoot me, but then we'll see. Just pet the rabbits, George. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for joining us again tonight. Just to ease us into our topic back in the uh in the middle ages the ultimate form of weaponry the primary means of doing combat was the knight on horseback armored in their gleaming metal plated armor with their chain mail beneath it they were virtually impervious these highborn noble warriors they were the tanks of their era and pretty much the only thing that could take them on was another knight on mounted horseback until a small invention came along called the longbow a very simple weapon made of wood and string or some other filament that virtually any peasant could build and wield and suddenly from a long distance they could take down any of these mighty knights on horseback and pretty much rendered them ineffective so suddenly, you had these low peasants who could be take out these noble-born warriors, and it changed the landscape of warfare to the point that some people speculated that war as we know it would end because there was no point. And of course, that did not happen. Shortly thereafter, or around the same time, mighty rulers and noblemen began to surround themselves with high castle walls and large embankments, essentially building fortresses out of stone and mortar that were virtually impenetrable. And as long as they had enough supplies, they could outlast any kind of siege. And then the trebuchet came on the scene. And suddenly, there was a machine that was capable of flinging stone or even rudimentary explosives that could destroy any kind of wall or embankment or defense. And nothing was safe anymore. And again, warfare changed. But these were the back in the day. More modern times, we had the atomic bomb that we dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. The first and thankfully only time that nuclear weapons have been implemented in war. A weapon so powerful that it got an entire nation to capitulate and to surrender for fear of annihilation. These were weapons that changed warfare, that shifted the tide of power so far to one side that it made the other effectively consider themselves unable to continue with said conflict. And these were, I think, what we would call superweapons, or in the German sense, uberweapons. And that's the subject of our topic today is super or mega weapons so powerful that they drive the narrative of a fictional setting or that they are the kind of the MacGuffin of a setting, so to speak. And some of the ones that are the most common, why do we think that they exist? And you know, why are they really technically ineffective? Yeah. There's a lot of examples of uh, super weapons in science fiction. I mean, I think the one that probably comes to most people's minds is the Death Star. 
Yes. The Death Star, I think, is, thank you, Crispy, for bringing it. I think that's the, the perfect example. It was the, a small moon-shaped space station with a super laser that was intended to be the ultimate power in the universe that basically it would make no, other, no planet, no system resist the Empire because they could just br bring it, park it in your neighborhood and just blow up your planet if you didn't like it. Obviously ended up having a little bit of a flaw twice. Um, but I think that is a good example of the super weapon. I think it's also an example of uh, super weapons badly because, well, for one thing, they put a lot of money into something that was very impractical in a sense because it's a giant base that you're putting all your eggs in one basket into. Yeah. And as we saw with Star Wars, with that blows up, that causes a lot of problems. The other problem is the fact that they didn't really do the thing with super weapons that, as they say in Dr. Strangelove, if it's no point in keeping a doomsday weapon a secret because it's important that your enemies know that you have something like that. So the whole idea of them keeping it secret that they have this giant fuck-off death ray that can blow up planets is a moot point because how is the galaxy supposed to fear the empire if it's a complete secret or better yet after they blew up Alderaan and then the rebels blew up the death star everyone everyone more or less went oh fuck these guys mm -hmm. and just over time slowly rebelled secretly against yeah against the empire because yeah Alderaan was a banking planet, but the issue is, oh, we couldn't just come in there and beat and figure out, mm, you're supporting rebels to specific people. They instead decide to just blow up an entire planet with everyone on there, imperial loyalist or not, they're gone now. And it's all fucked. That's kind of the problem with, super weapons in general is that they're indiscriminate you know the moment they use something like that it really kind of takes away from any sort of bargain chips or position that you have it just makes things open game yeah well i like the point crispy that you uh that you kind of made in the start was that they put all of their efforts all of their resources all of their financing into this single thing and i think it's very a good kind of allegory into exactly what happened with Nazi Germany in World War II. Mm -hmm. Hitler was so obsessed with come up with their Wunderwaffe, their, their wonder weapons, that they spent so much money trying to develop like the world's most gigantic Uber tank or the most incredible, you know, three times bigger than any other battleship ever developed and, you know, the most incredible planes. And although they did develop some really innovative technology you know in, uh, between the the v1 the v2 it, it, they uh actually ended up developing uh, uh i can't remember but it's, it's the first jet fire ah, the 262 right the 262 but the fact is they spent so much money and resources developing and trying to pour into these incredible you know far beyond weapons that they could have been re actually spending in actual resources in technology that was proven, things that could work, things that could have supported the war effort, that they actually hurt themselves and never really developed anything that was 
revolutionary enough to turn the tide of war. And I think that's a very good allegory for what happened with the Empire. And they, they spent all these resources in this giant single space station, this giant weapon. And then a little moisture farmer from a backwoods desert planet was able to blow it up and just, eh, and it was gone. When, you know, you could have spent that and built, you know, I don't know, maybe a few, several dozen more Star Destroyers that probably would have been far more effective. Yeah. Or worse yet, some parts of the expanded universe was talking about how there was this one outpost that was asking, begging for resupplies and resources for their basic equipment. They were like taking all the money and just throwing it into the Death Star. A guy spent like years without necessary parts like... Oh, the axle on this on this mobile base is broken. We can't fix it because all the money is going into the Death Star. Putting all your resources into one intensive project as opposed to spreading it out to different things that together can make a difference, you know. Right. It's one massive linchpin. For lack of a better uh, I'm going to pull an allegory and I'm I'm from Tech Talks BattleTech, the Warhammer video. Good enough is perfect. Yeah. There's no need to develop and throw everything into trying to make the most advanced, most high-tech, most blah, 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 that is so far beyond everything else when you've sunk so many resources in it. When if you just take something that works and put the money in that and get something that's efficient, you get way more benefit out of that than trying to come up with something so, that's so beyond turbo beyond everything else. And, uh, and thank you so much for bringing up Expanded Universe because, thankfully, we, now I'm not the only Star Wars nerd on the pod for once because I have a list because Star Wars loves its mega uber super weapons. Uh, we've got Death Star 1. That's no moon. Death Star 2. Electric Boogaloo. Let's blow it up again. Mm -hmm. And then from the Expanded Universe, they just kept coming up with uber weapons. All right. My personal favorite the sun crusher i was about to say because okay if you've if you have no idea what the sun crusher is oh my god imagine the dumbest possible starfighter you can think of it basically looks like a funnel with another smaller funnel on top except instead of round it's kind of a little more squared off so the sun crusher was this completely impervious indestructible starfighter sized ship created by some mad genius that had warheads that when fired into a star would cause it to go supernova. Long story short, bad pseudo Jedi decides he's going to go bad, takes this uber weapon, blows up some stars, killing entire star systems. Oh, by the way, the thing is so indestructible, he literally flew it through a star destroyer. No more questions. I'll break your hand. Through a Star Destroyer, right? In the end, the only way they could quote-unquote kill it was the dude had to decide it was too powerful that they sent it into a black hole so that nobody else could get a hold of it. Not that it was destroyed. It's just now no one can get to it. <sighs> now, next Star Wars mega uber super weapon, the galaxy gun. God, the galaxy gun. Don't remember this one a whole lot, but basically, from my understanding, it's a giant cannon that shoots warheads that once they shoot, 
they have their own hyperdrives attached, which is dumb in my opinion, because why not just try attach the warheads directly to the hyperdrives in the first place? But you know, whatever. No more questions. Then there is the Starforge. So way back, 30,000 years BBY, which is before the Battle of Yavin, a.k.a. Episode 4 of New Hope, the Rakata Star Empire were these evil, ice-stalky dudes that went around and took over the galaxy. They had this space station thing called the Starforge. And what it would do is they would park it into a star system, and it would draw all the power from the star in that system, suck it up, and then just had onboard factories that would create all these war machines that would allow them to defeat all of the planets in that star system. So it was a weapon and space station thing. So it ate the sun. Yep, exactly. It just it ate the sun and then created all the things. I hate that. Which, which, see, they kind of ripped that off because in the Dark Empire series, they had the World Devastators, which were basically smaller versions. I was going to bring those up because that's my favorite super weapon in Star Wars. Yeah, they were just these giant machines with four legs that were like, each leg had a, like a giant rocket engine underneath it so that they could hover. And they would just fly down to the planet and suck up all the natural resources and onboard factories would create, you know, autonomous droids and ships and tanks and shit so that while it was simultaneously eating your planet it was creating forces to take over your planet and then of course the one that i will mention only because it's a thing that people will say even though we don't talk about them star killer base which is basically death star three uh, but bigger but that's enough we don't have to talk about that anymore uh, let's but star wars has a thing for uber weapons well, I mean, you began the first, literally first, just the first thing with war has changed. We're going to build a giant laser gun that blows up the planet. And then they did it again. And they did it again. So, yeah. And they kept doing it. That's kind of the problem, too. It's once you use a super weapon enough times in a fictional story, it just takes away from the impact of it. Well, it's they almost make a joke out of it in Star Wars in particular. The and Rise of Skywalker. I hate to, to rag on it because I love Star Wars. Oh, yeah. That is probably my one setting that is most near dearest to my heart. But goddamn, they keep going to this super weapon well, and they never work. The, the only time I think they actually kind of parody it, there is a standalone book in the Expanded Universe called The Dark Saber. Yes. Where a if, if memory serves, a rogue hut steals these plans to the original Death Star, and then using these weird little like hive mind creatures that it has commands or enslaved, builds this giant Death Star in space, but they've stripped everything out of it except the super weapon it is just the super laser so it's essentially shaped like a giant lightsaber in space and they call it the dark saber and their whole point is well now once we're in control of this we can take on the republic we can blah blah you know we'll know it'll fuck with us because we've got this and of course due to shoddy workmanship i think the thing never worked or something but it, it, the, the the whole book was essentially a parody of the super weapon Mm-hmm. Yeah, the um, the hut was like the only hut that had hair. The a spy went to the dark saber, looked around, and went, 
this guy is using cheap labor by things who are barely sentient, who have no idea what they're doing. If they fire this, it's just going to explode. Yeah. And they were using like the very cheapest materials they could get. Like that the whole thing was just like doomed from the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and just one thing as a callback to the last episode, if anybody's listening, uh, this is a, would be, I believe, episode five, episode four, Aliens. I mentioned in that episode that the huts are asexual and reproduce asexually. How the ever that was true in Legends, since Disney bought the franchise, they have changed that. Now huts do have individual uh, male, quote unquote, male and female sexes although they have not specified exactly how they reproduce. I don't want to think about that. Just wanted to clarify that. I don't want to think about that at all. Damn, I wish I was on the last episode because, well, I can talk about speculative biology all I'm afraid of any time, but... I'm um, afraid of where this conversation is going to go. Crispy, you don't want to get in on any of that hot hut on hut slug action. I think I'd rather be on Alderaan when they fired the Death Star. That is fair. To be fair, Without in hut space, three is the minimum. I don't want to know what you mean by that. Three what? Trains. Oh, God. Editor, keep this in, please. We need to make Krat suffer. I already suffer. Anyway. You send me things on a regular basis. <laughs> We're sending things. I can send you some way more cursed stuff than that. But we are getting off. No, topic. that's fine. All right, so we've established the fact that Star Wars loves their super weapon, but it never works. It never, ever works. I can think of one that's dumber. What's that? Warhammer 40K. Okay, I don't know Warhammer 40K, so I can't get into that. Okay, I will preface this by saying that my knowledge of 40K is very much a surface level. I don't know the in-depth lore about a lot of shit. I just know things that I've read in wiki articles and things. However, one thing I will say is that I have read in an entire section of wiki that is just talking about the Imperium's method of getting rid of shit called Exterminatus, which comes in many different flavors. The one that you probably see gifts the most of is when they bombard the planet with melted torpedoes, which are essentially nukes on steroids. I think they're like fusion bombs. Yeah, they're they're real spicy, real spicy missiles. They're, they're the forbidden chorizo. But the one that I remember reading about is a double-stage Melta warhead where the first warhead penetrates to the planet's core, and the second warhead detonates at the planet's core. That's just one method the Empire has of blowing up a planet. Another one is just to bombard the surface. There's also virus bombs they can drop. There's all sorts of crazy shit they will do to wipe out all life on a planet. And then just send bodies onto the ruins of the planet to recolonize it pretty much yeah it's the imperium which is another thing of 40k being over the top which is a subject for an entire other episode yeah. that that's suffice to say that you know 40k tends to be like the kid that just goes over the top with everything when you're comparing stuff lately i've been in getting into more of the first and second edition of Warhammer, which honestly, I kind of prefer that version over the chaos did everything shit they're doing. I can understand that. I don't know a lot about it, but again, that's a whole other episode. Yeah. Okay. Just slight tangent on a tangent. Do you know how often BPL podcast main 
get so many just like, oh, wouldn't it be funny if yada and yada happens? And when they describe it, it's canon. Yeah. Like, um, Halion, you know of the one Jedi Master in the Fall of the Republic era that had like four wives? Oh, man. Warren Jeffs? Kiyandi Mundi. Yeah, and they described, oh, yeah, that guy totally has a, a wife and kids. And, like, yeah. yes, yes yeah. he does. Yeah, because his, uh, he's he's the guy that you, that, for those that don't know, um, he's the Jedi Master that has the giant, really tall head with the thin little white, like, knot-top ponytail. His yeah. species has two brains, um, but they have such a low reproductive rate that he was allowed, he was given an exception as a Jedi, even a Jedi Master, to not only take a wife, but to take multiple wives to continue on his species. Yeah, I think the population is like, for every three women, there's only one man. Something like that. Sounds like an interesting time. <laughs> he has like five kids. Just, oh God, it's like the Amish. Oh, hey, I've almost got five kids. Good on you. I mean, hey, four that I know of, so it's possible. Yeah, but the good the good news is you have indoor plumbing. That is true. As opposed to the Amish. Very true. All right. Uh, More than likely, they have indoor plumbing. It's just certain aspects of technology. Side tangent inside, I, I live in an area where there's Amish. I will tell you that their use of technology is very interesting. For example, I used to mark utility lines, which dies a whole other conversation, but suffice it to say, it was a very tedious job. But the one time I had to mark at this one property that was owned by this Amish family, they said they had a phone, but according to the prints that I had, there phone line didn't seem to connect to their house. So I asked them, hey, can I see where phone's at? And they took me to the barn. And in the barn was wall-mounted wireless phone, you know, kind of like the whole early 2000s thing. But it was connected to a bank of what looked like car batteries. There must have been over a dozen of them to power just this phone. And this was just in their barn because the thing about their beliefs, I guess, is that they don't allow technology in the house, but I guess anywhere else is okay. Because I've heard stories about Amish having TVs and things in their barns. How true those are, I'm not entirely certain, but I will say just based off of that and other stories I've heard, I believe it. Yeah, to be fair, it's more of a, we are not forbidden to use technology. We are just forbidden to use it to ease our lives or make our lives more ungodly. Honestly, this could be a whole other episode, too. It's just talking about technology and its use in society. But back to the the weapon, super weapon idea. Holy shit, we have gone off topic. (laughs) As traditional, we have really gotten tangent. Now... Back to yep. the mega super weapons. I think we've beat the the super weapons in Star Wars to death. Of course, there are far more that we could list, but I I just wanted to kind of I I think we've already hit the the top ones. Star Trek. Can either of you name any what I would consider to be the mega or uber super weapons from Star Trek? Because Star Trek tends to shy away from them for obvious reasons. Honestly, no, I don't have any. There's two examples i can think of one is definite the other one is my own personal opinion uh the first one was from the jj abrams yes. star trek movies the whole red matter matter thing, where the planet killing 
which I don't understand that. I feel like Red Matter is made up, and also it's J.J. Abrams' Star Trek, which I know is controversial to some people. Personally, I liked it, but I'm also not a huge Trekkie. But I know that that was the one super weapon that they had. You're absolutely correct. That is on the list. Red Matter. Somehow, you have this, what looks like red mercury, that you can take a little bitty bit of, and then you can put it in the middle of a planet or wherever the hell you want, and somehow it makes a black hole or singularity. They never explain it in the movie. Not once. It's just, this is a thing, and this is what it does. But that is absolutely a super uber we mega weapon from Star Trek. Now, I, I'm with you, Crispy. It's weird. The whole J.J. Abrams Kelvin timeline universe is different. It's weird. I still love it. I am perfectly happy with it existing as a different version of Trek, but not the Trek that everyone typically knows. I guess I'm weird that way. But another of the... Oh, sorry. I had another one that I wanted to say. Oh, um, go ahead, please. In do. my own personal opinion, I kind of think that the Borg, in a sense, mm. are a sort of super weapon. Not necessarily one launched by a civilization, but they are essentially, and this is something that I wanted to bring up earlier with the world devastators, is the idea of a von Neumann probe. Something that goes to another system mm -hmm. and replicates copies of itself. I would say that that's a textbook example of what the Borg are. And it's on the list. Specifically, the Borg nanobots. Mm -hmm. Because... Yes, nanotechnology, the idea of a gray goo event. Right, because in Voyager, they extensively use the nanobots from Seven in multiple episodes to defeat adversaries or to change outcomes in others and situations and that's i think the is the great weapon the great advantage of the borg is those nanobots you could program them to do anything even in the next generation they use the nanobots reprogrammed to change borg culture to send a quote-unquote trojan horse back into the Borg collective so that i think in any definition those nanobots represent a super weapon because they can es essentially recreate an entire species or culture into whatever you want them to be. Nanomachines, son! To be fair, that's yep. like a standard great goo event. Yeah. Of course, I also heard a mix of things like that. I've been reading a lot of this thing called hyperspace. Well, the fiction for hyperspace called... Which was, which was made by Sandy Peterson. Hmm. What's that about? Um, from what I could tell, well, from what I've been reading, it's his version of a sci-fi world, a sci-fi universe, while deeply delving into speculative biology, mm -hmm. such as, oh, how would an actual kaiju work? Well, more than likely, they wouldn't have DNA and would have things like tungsten, iron aluminum maybe they would be biologically radioactive mm. to the point where to consume plutonium and uranium and florium or whatever the hell it's called that would have been a good uh subject on our last podcast where we discussed aliens yeah yeah i'm fucking pissed that i missed it uh <laughs> ah well happens we're still trying to figure shit out as it is aliens oh someday aliens yes also Speaking of super weapons, there are about three of them that is in hyperspace. One is the 
I think they're called Dalbaths, but their whole thing is, yeah, we use super weapons to turn planets into asteroid fields so we can mine them. Wow, that's, I mean, that's smarter than most doomsday weapons. That sucks for anyone on the planet. Yeah. Yeah, in the little, like, three-paragraph fiction they that they were serving, it was a bunch of humans and other aliens escaping the planet while they more or less just... Oh, shame blows it up. And while the humans are running away with like literally nothing to their name, the dull deaths emailed them saying, Hey, you want a job? Wow. They, the humans go, what? Hey, yeah. You just blew up our planet. You know, since you're homeless and stuff, you know? Yeah. But do you want a job? You just, you know? Yeah. So what if we blow up your planet? It's kind of like the equivalent of somebody walking up in a crane to knock down the building that you live in and be like, hey, now that you're all homeless and shit, you know, we just happen to have this nice little tent city. You want to rent a place to live? Well, <laughs> like the Chucker's Guide to the Galaxy. I got the little um, three, one, two, three, four. I got a four pa- paragraph thing. Do you want me to read this out loud? Hey, go for it. We're only half an hour in. Oh, shit. (laughs) Daldath. The Daldath are a terrifying civilization which can desolate the map. They leave hollow spots in their swath, from which they can later harvest precious supplies. The destruction is expensive, however, and other civilizations can often profit this same destruction. The Dal Death can create giant biomechanical structures deeply rooted in a planet and powered by energy from its core. These structures project destructive energies across the light years of space and destroy entire worlds. Their planet smashers are the core of Dal Death's power. Though they can be destroyed, it is difficult. Well, with the Dal Death, imagine a chicken nugget with intestines. Covered in cybernetics. Gross. Hmm. They could eat Chipotle. Eh, maybe. In better times, this world was a joint colony of human and Zeg and Zepzeg, a shining example of cooperation. However, I heard the shrieks of men and women, the wailing of children, and the hissing of ulations of frightening Zepzeg. From call, some called for their children or spouse or on God. Some prayed for death in their terror of dying some called on god but others shouted no gods were left alive the universe was plunged in internal darkness forevermore a gleam of light returned in the sky but we took this to be a warning of approaching flames rather than daylight the flames if such they were remained some distance off then darkness came on once more and ashes began to fall in heavy showers about a hundred of us clambered through the piles of falling ash. Otherwise, we should have been buried, crushed beneath their weight. Over the course of an hour, my group attracted more forlorn survivors, and I seemed to be the leader of the group. Perhaps because no cry of fear escaped me. I admit I derived some poor consolation in my moral mortal lot from my belief that the whole world was dying and I with it. Finally, we reached my ship after struggling ponderously through the ash. I wasn't sure we could launch through the dust, but we had no choice. Success. Below us, cracks became visible in the planet's crust. It seemed like we had escaped just in time. But even so, my ship seemed 
doomed. It was pitted and damaged while taking off through the storms and swirling cinders and was unable to transition to hyperspace. We could not leave this room. We drifted uselessly for weeks, stored, eating stored supplies and growing more frantic as time wore on. One day, my sensors detected a dull death platform floating in synchronous orbit around our asteroid field, once a fertile world. Was it an observer to record the havoc its nation has wrought? I sent messages to the Daldat platform, asking for permission to dock, and its airlock open. My ragtag band of survivors were too frightened to enter the Daldat construction, construction, but I took courage and crossed the threshold. The platform was small. The airlock opened directly onto the control room, where a repulsive being floated, mechanically enhanced eyes glowing venomously. It had dozen pipes, tentacles, or hoses dangling from it, each with some different purpose. Some hoses were attached physically to the ship's walls. I question it. Why destroy this world? Why not at least wait until we could evacuate? You have made enemies of both humans, Zepzeg. The Daldath's computer-enhanced response was e immediate. My analysis. Your ship is damaged. I must retrieve useful elements here. Assist me. I repay you with access to repair machines. Was it offering me a job? Alone on its platform, tasked with harvesting supplies from the world's wreck, my ship seemed to be just a tool to the thing. I should have refused support to this genocidal beast, save for one factor. The men, women, children, and Zepzeg evacuees aboard my ship. I am not proud of that of the days that followed, but the Daldath kept its word, even handing out large credit bonuses. My survivors were able to set up new lives elsewhere with this cash. Some went so far as to thank the Daldath for its help, forgetting that, that its platform had wiped out their homes, their friends, and their whole previous existence. As for me, I shall never forgive nor forget death to the Daldath. Anyway, that's it. Hmm. Thank you for joining us for uh, Masterpiece Theater with Closing Straw 97. To be honest, I, I would love to be a voice actor, but I'm busy. That's a hard biz to break into. Anyway, I've got two more mega uber super weapons from Star Trek. The Omega Particle. Ooh. If anyone remembers who watched Voyager. I do. There is the Omega Protocol. That is hidden and secret, only known to Starfleet Command and Starfleet Captains. And what that is, is if an Omega Particle is detected, then whatever mission parameters have been given are immediately overridden, and that ship in that crew is to proceed to wherever that particle was detected and to take control and destroy it. And the Omega Particle is this perfect particle that exists theoretical particle that exists in the star trek universe that is so powerful that each particle each molecule has the power of an entire warp core and the borg worship the omega particle as the very example of perfection and so they are attempting to synthesize this particle the only problem with the omega particle 
which the Starfleet is also aware of and attempted to develop themselves, is that it tends to be a little bit unstable, and when it gets angry, it goes boom-boom. And not only does it destroy a large area around itself, it also destroys subspace itself for several light years, making warp in that area impossible. So this is a a uber weapon that is too dangerous to exist. And therefore, Starfleet standing order is if it's if it's discovered, if it's detected, you go wherever it is and you shut the fuck down because it's too dangerous. Nobody can possess it. And the last one that I want to get into is from yes, I'm going to beat this dead horse into the ground, Star Trek Discovery, because in the last season, the DMA which is essentially a space strip mine rig from an extraterrestrial species that accidentally becomes a solar system wrecker. There's a few other examples uh, from the original series that you could consider to be super weapons, but, you know, that's old shit that I'm not going to get into. Anything else you gentlemen can come up with? For Star Trek, um, would V'ger count? Yes, I think V'ger technically counts, although it, I don't think it was intended as a weapon, even though it kind of did. I would say so. Um, other than that, I mean, I can't think of anything. Any other sci-fi mega weapons that uh, happen to be on your minds? Hmm. To be completely honest, there is one, technically, but it's also based on reality. The Orion Drive, hmm. or, well, the Orion Ship. Okay, you can't say Orion, and my head doesn't immediately go to Diggs playing Orion in Orion. Star Trek. <laughs> no matter what anybody says, that character lived and breathed. Yeah. I'm sorry. Well, I mean, it's a ship. It's a spaceship powered by mm-hmm. nukes to send nukes to destroy the entire planet. It's, it's a matter of propulsion where you're basically chucking a hand grenade out of the back of your car to make it go faster. No, you're using a hand grenade in the muffler to to explode and for when concentrated explosion that goes off, you go forward, it goes off, you go forward, it goes off, huh. you go forward. Yeah. So it's kind of like the spaceship version of the Cold War speculated nuclear powered bomber that America and both America and Russia were t- attempting to develop nuclear-powered bombers until they figured out, yeah, wherever this thing goes, it's going to irradiate everything in its path. Well, this is uh, actually based off a Cold War project as well. They wanted to make Project Orion for real back in the Cold War. And then they, after you know the Cuban Missile Crisis and things, they realized, maybe we shouldn't do something this batshit crazy. You know, like Metal Gear? Pretty much Every idea that they had in the Cold War. Yeah. Well, I thought of another weapon, too. The Another not-so-science-fiction weapon, uh, the Rods from God. Yes, Thor's hammer. The kinetic bombardment, yeah. Where you're basically dropping a telephone pole-sized tungsten rod from orbit, and gravity does the rest. I love those. Yeah. It's real crazy. Just the very idea that it's, it's low-tech, but utterly devastating. Mm-hmm. Honestly, it feels like some of those would work better than, well, I've been listening to a Dune audiobook. It was on Spotify, binged it all until they reached the part where 
Paul and his mom are trapped in the desert and they're trying to survive before they meet the Fremen. And occasionally they go, yeah, here's what happens when a energy shield gets hit by a laser. Both explode in this horrible, essentially mm-hmm. go off as a nuke. Mm-hmm. And, and that's what I, I kind of like that idea in the set in the Dune setting in that yeah, we've got all this technology, but we still have to fight hand-to-hand, low-tech, because we have the technology to do things beyond that, but it's really bad if we use it. Yeah. The future idea of mutually assured destruction. Yeah. See, I kind of had the same thought about if you did, let's just, say, let's just take Star Wars, for example. All right. If you had a bunch of stormtroopers... In you know boarding an enemy ship, it'd be kind of stupid to be running around with a bunch of blaster rifles, wouldn't it? Because what happens if you miss lasers into a bulkhead creates holes, and what is space full of? Vacuum. Vacuum. Right. So that would kind of be a bad idea, would it not? to be running around blasting holes inside a, in ships in full of space. So wouldn't it make a lot more sense to be using, like, I don't know, knives and swords and shit that wouldn't likely destroy everyone around you? You know, I think the uh, Legend of the Galactic Heroes actually does something in regards to that. Uh, soldiers, when they board ships, use axes and swords. Yeah, that's a very good point. Maybe that would make more sense. I, I mean, I right. never got the sense with blasters from Star Wars that they had a lot of penetrating power as opposed to ballistic weapons, which... Except for Stormtrooper armor. Yeah, which... Which couldn't stop anything but a fist. Well, it's supposed to stop... Um, actually, I think in Episode 4, you see soldiers still moving after they've been hit. It actually stops the blaster bolt. It's just a matter of... Um, I mean, being off topic, I think Stormtrooper armor is more meant to stop fragmentation and other things like normal ballistic gear. You know, yeah. if if you can, be, if a stormtrooper can be taken out by a fucking teddy bear with a uh, slingshot, it's useless. Oh man, are we gonna get into the subject of stormtroopers and their actual useless? Is that a whole other episode? No, that's that's a whole other episode. All right, yeah, I I, I want to continue down the line. Yeah. So. We've talked about super weapons in sci-fi. What about super weapons in fantasy slash magical settings? Because I've got a few. The, the first one I can think of is the um, Lord of the Rings with the yes. basically the cauldron full of gunpowder that they use to blow open Helm's Deep. Oh, I wasn't even going there. That's practical. I'm talking about the One Ring. Oh, good point. The One Ring. The One Ring to rule them all. The One Ring to bring them all together in the darkness bind them. Right, mm-hmm. the One Ring is the super weapon. It's the whole driving force of that franchise, right? Yep. It, because you can't let the Dark Lord get the One Ring. Because if you do, then he will win the battle. So, to me, in Lord of the Rings, the One Ring is the ultimate super weapon. Now, what about Harry Potter? The, the Elden the, Wand. Yeah. The Elder Wand. Right? Mm-hmm. The wand that can defeat any other wand. So whichever wizard possesses it can defeat any other wizard. That sounds like a super weapon to me. Yeah, I agree with that. Right? All right. I've got another one. And this is from old literature. Eh, fantasy setting, if you want. Excalibur. Oh, yeah, that makes sense. The sword that can defeat any other sword. Right? 
Mm-hmm. If you come in, if you have, you know, King Arthur possesses Excalibur. Excalibur can defeat any other sword it comes into. That's a super weapon. You're not wrong. Now, let's get into pseudo-historical, depending on what your beliefs are. What about the Ark of the Covenant from Indiana Jones? Uh, definitely can melt people's faces. Right. But it's said that who that whatever army possessed the Ark of the Covenant when they go into battle would be undefeatable. Mm-hmm. Which is why in Indiana Jones and the and the uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, the Nazis were trying to find it so that they could be undefeatable. Now, related to that, the Spear of Destiny, supposedly the spear that pierced the side of Christ. If you possessed it, you were supposed again to be essentially immortal or undefeatable. Yeah. Sounds like a super weapon to me. Yeah. I also think of the um, Bhagavad Gita Hindu texts that talk about the battles of the gods and some of the things in that. My li- my knowledge is very limited. It's only been like a glance that I've looked into with that kind of stuff at all. But I know there's been examples of like chariots and arrows that can destroy armies and things. So Yeah, I, they have some very vague recollections of that that there's like these flying chariots or flying palaces and things like that and that i I don't remember a lot of it i don't either it's be an interesting thing to look into but i could consider that an example as well all right i've got two last uber weapons that i that i want to bring up that come to me because of my nascent nerddom from the world of comic books from marvel we have the infinity gauntlet literally a gauntlet that, when worn, gives you the ability to have control over the entire universe. And then some simp uses it to try and impress a girl. Yeah, that's pretty much the whole thing. They 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 really strayed away from that in the uh, in the MCU. For anyone that isn't aware, Thanos in the MCU is essentially a, an eco terrorist who wants to gain the power over the over reality to destroy half the universe to bring balance to it, whereas in the comics, the whole purpose of him achieving the Infinity Gauntlet was to wipe out half of all life because he was in love with death and was trying to court death and get, quote-unquote, her attention. And that's why he wanted to wipe out half of all life. Yeah, he was, to put it lightly, he was groomed. He was groomed by someone to do this for her. And when, as soon as he did it, she tossed him aside. Yeah. She was just like, eh, that's nice. And she went on. She cuts, death cuts Thanos. Yep. (laughs) Death cut Thanos for Deadpool and just kept on doing it. Well, I mean, to be fair, if your choice was Josh Brolin or Ryan Reynolds, I mean, come on. Josh Brolin, obviously. Oh, Okay. This this is a discussion we will have to have off. Grim- Grimace or a scrotum, what's your choice? <laughs> All right. I've got now, I am a DC boy at heart. Always have been, always will be. So I can't help but bring up the anti-life equation. I never understood that. Yeah. Well, if I'm being honest, but the way I understand it is in the DC universe, there is this at the core of the universe, there is this wall called the source wall. The source wall is the the barrier through which all existence is made. 
and it holds back the chaos that undoes everything. The ultimate bad guy from the DC Universe, Darkseid, Darkseid is, um, his whole ambition of his existence is to find the anti-life equation, meaning power to penetrate and destroy the source wall, to wipe out all life in the universe. That is his whole purpose for existing. I don't know why he's a weird dude, but that's his thing. Like, Darkseid essentially is a galactic-wide school shooter. That's essentially what he is. <laughs> you kids are cool. Don't come to New Genesis tomorrow. <laughs> <coughs> you guys are cool. Don't go to Earth tomorrow. I mean, that's, that's what he exists to do. He just wants, he just wants to watch the universe burn. No other reason because he's just emo like that. He really likes my chemical romance. Mm. Hey, do not besmirch my camera like that. No, nah, man. I, I like some of their songs. Ghost of you is still a great song. Yeah, he's really into the cure. Yeah, there we go. Yeah. I mean, he's got the look for it. He looks like his mascara has been running real hard. Now here's, We've talked, we have named a bunch of uber mega weapons in, in the different settings. Jesus Christ, we went, we went from mega weapons to just talking about the cure. How the fuck did we get here? Because it's the, it's the ox, baby. That's how it happens. Ox, go give it to you. Fuck, wait, you can get it on your own. <laughs> oh, DMX RMP. Um, um, but here's the question. What purpose do these super weapons really serve? Because they never work. Hmm. In the end, in pretty much every setting I can think of, save one, they don't work. In the end, whoever is the nefarious force that is after them or developing them or has them ends up losing or doesn't achieve them. And the quote-unquote good Kai or the side of right defeats them. In Virtually every setting. Hmm. So what's the purpose? Why is what what do super weapons merely exist as a MacGuffin? Yes, man. To give us a story? I if only we had a current example that we could use for this situation. Well, I can tell you again, I said I can only think of one setting. And granted, I understand that this is probably not entirely correct. I'm sure people will inundate us, hopefully when they hear this episode with other examples, but I can only personally think of one example where there was a super weapon that was created that worked for its intended purpose, where the person behind it achieved their goal. And that is the squid from Watchmen. Hmm. Yeah, I can, uh, I can see that actually. Well, cause are you both familiar? I am familiar with what you're talking about. It's different in the movie, but I know what you're talking about. And then no, 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 we don't talk about the movie. Oh, no, I, I both I both love and loathe that movie. Oh, so it's like Starship Troopers. It's because it is. I love it for how faithful they recreated most of the book, and I hate it for all the things that they didn't recreate from the book and that they changed. Man, this is something we can get into in another episode as well. But oh, that could be a whole. That, that could be an entire episode. But for the for the book. Um, spoilers, spoilers, spoilers. The book came out in 1986. If you haven't read it or seen it yet, shame on you. But in the book, the main antagonist has created by genetically modifying the brain of a, of incredibly, uh, psychic 
uh, sensitive individual, this gigantic monstrosity of a beast, which simply basically is a brain with a bunch of tentacles, a beak, and a single eye. I created the TSA. And imprinted into this brain are the writings of some of the most gothic, dark writers of the time. The the art of M.C. Escher, the art of M.C. Geiger, of all of these just dark, horrible things. And the antagonist of the transports this quote-unquote squid individual to the heart of Times Square in New York at the stroke of midnight. Upon when it arrives, it instantly dies, but it also kills virtually half of New York City. The fact that it has all of this psychic ability and these dark and evil things imprinted upon it, um, I believe the way it was described in the book is those that were in the near vicinity would have bad dreams for years. Those that were psychically sensitive would be instantly driven mad. And the whole purpose of this creation, this incident, this millions of death, was to try to convince the world that an attack from beings from another dimension or another world was imminent, and that this was just a botched attempt, thereby preventing nuclear war, thereby uniting the world to create peace. And it worked. For how long? At least a while, but it worked. That's like the end of the book, spoilers, to where... Although there was a brilliant HBO series that came out that explores the time after that, that I watched out of hate because I was expecting to despise it and ended up loving it. Hmm. But that's the, that to my knowledge, at least in my opinion, that's the only quote unquote mega weapon that I can think of that actually worked for its intended purpose and achieved its intended goal where a quote, the quote-unquote bad guy won. Hmm. Of course, you got to remember the whole thing with the Watchmen is that they don't like each other. Did we include the Succession Wars and the Great Houses of the Star League in terms of webs that worked, or did they just burn everything down and basically counteract what they were trying to do? They well, both, both happened, honestly. Yeah, I mean, you've got the... Star League Defense Force going out and pacifying the periphery. And then you've got the them coming you've got them coming home and then you've got the you know the first and second succession wars and then the third succession wars. But really I I, I want to say it was after the second succession wars that they were all kind of like guys let's let's stop nuking planets that's kind of a bad deal. But I don't really think of those as uber weapons because you just nuked planets. When you're talking about star empires that compose thousands of worlds, nuking a few dozen doesn't really make that big of a difference. It's awful if you're part of the, one of those worlds, but in the grand scheme of the setting, not as big of a deal. It's not, in, in the sense of battle tech, it's not really the sense of a doomsday weapon in terms of nukes. Right. Yeah. But because of the scale of the setting, it's like they've just, that's kind of why they became so prevalent because the idea of them being a doomsday end of civilization uh, weapon has become a moot point because there are so many planets that even if you did use nuclear weapons as a regular occurrence, it doesn't destroy all the planets, which is why the Age of War happened and why 
you know, they had to end up establishing the Ares Conventions because they were like, wait a minute, maybe we shouldn't nuke every planet. Yeah. Yeah. Well, now also raises the question of if, say, the Death Star becomes normal, then what's stopping people from just using them? So the rise of Skywalker then, because they were like, we put Death Star lasers on all of our Star Destroyers. And it's like, why would you... Okay, now you're just talking about the Eclipse-class Star Destroyer. Well, that's the thing. That's the practical sense of it. Then the rise of Skywalker, they basically, it's like, we put Death Star cannons on all of our Star Destroyers because we hate planets, I guess? Yeah. Bad guys, see? We're evil! It's like, and then that's... And that's the part of it too. If you're going to use weapons like that as on mass, it's going to take away from any sort of sympathy you have from most sane people. You know. Yeah. See, I I think as far as most fictional settings, I think the whole purpose of the super weapon, they fall into two categories. They either fall into the category of they essentially negate all of your enemies or quote or adversaries. Ability to combat. Essentially, you, I, I'm negating your ability to combat me. I, I am overcompensating whatever ability you have. You know, whatever whatever defensive or offensive capability you have, I have now negated it. I am more powerful than that. Or they fall into the other category, which is I have created something so powerful, so amazing that I can simply instantaneously wipe out any opposition to me. So you've got one that is essentially a counteractive to the other, and you've got and the other, which is I can just wipe the board and eliminate instantaneously all opposition to me. And to me, the first can be interesting in that it's not, it doesn't completely change because then all you have to wait for is the counter to it. It's like, all right, I have a rock. Well, now I've developed the blade. Well, now I've developed the arrow. Well, now I've developed the gun. Versus, you know, I have a rock. Well, now I have a missile. Boom. You're dead. Evolutionary warfare. Right. But for most part, I think with most quote-unquote super weapons, the way they're presented in fiction is it's just a storytelling device. In the end, they're never really meant... To work, they're never really meant to affect the setting. It's just a MacGuffin to drive the narrative. An escalation of the stakes, right? Because more often than not, they don't ever end up achieving what they were designed or intended to do. At least not for the for the person in designing them. Makes sense. And to be fair, you don't want to be the guy who who presses the button that kills billions. No, I mean. Well, technically, there was one in the Star Wars canon, but after he realized, how many people did I kill? He was literally procrastinating while firing on the rebels. Like, don't worry, just wait on it, wait on it. You have the right to fire at any moment, wait on it. Yeah, I think that's something to consider, too, when it comes to super weapons, is just, like, the human factor of it, you know? That's in Metal Gear, oh god. Well, Metal Gear, if we're going to be talking Metal Gear, first of all, I've never played the game. Second of all, I'm not on enough drugs mm. to start going into the plot of Metal Gear because it just gets so out there. 
It was made on the pants of Kojima, who went, hmm, maybe this, hmm, maybe this, hmm. They didn't, this guy didn't piss himself enough, hmm, add more. Yeah, it's, it's Kojima. Yeah, I think the BPL covered Kojima on multiple episodes yeah, well enough. God, yeah. But I think really what it comes down to is with the super weapon is that ultimately there has to be good and evil. The drive is evil is going to use the super weapon for evil. Good is going to either destroy the super weapon or hold the super weapon to keep back evil. It's never presented for the fact that there's this gray area in where a super weapon is developed just to develop it, just for the purpose of, hey, here's a thing I think we could do without realizing what it might actually be end up using for. Because there's the old adage that there was never a weapon so terrible developed that there wasn't someone willing to use it. I mean, to be fair, there has been at least, I do remember there is one group of quote-unquote good guys that used it, and that was in Mass Effect, the Genophage. Yeah. It's a biological weapon for sure. Yeah, it's biological sterilization weapon that kills 999 newborns out of 1,000. Mm-hmm. That doesn't sound like a good thing. No. You gotta also remember, this is for the Krogans, who in-universe are the equivalent of orcs. They breed fast, they grow up fast, and they grow up violent. Yep. They were, that was the thing. They were overpopulating worlds and just trying to seize them for their own because they had a population explosion that led to the war, which then led to that being like, what did he use his weapon? Well, you got to remember, the Krogan were kind of chucking asteroids at planets. Like oh, yeah. Several garden planets like Earth, and they just blew it up. And so the whole debate within... Before the events of Mass Effect, there was this debate of genophage or genocide. And, well, they picked genophage. Yeah, lesser of two evils in a sense. I mean... Which is, I mean, that's another thing to talk about in terms of uh, super weapons is the idea of the lesser of two evils of using it or not using it, which in the situation is worse. I mean, we've experienced that in our own world where people use that still to talk about the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki in terms of saving lives versus what an invasion of the Japanese mainland would have been like. Yeah. Of course, there's also debates of, yeah, maybe neither would have been honestly useful because I did mm. Japanese friends who was like, no, 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 the nukes were unnecessary. The Russians would have helped. You wanted Japan to be taken over by the Russians? Yeah. Well, there was also the whole, um, with Project Paperclip and the Manhattan Project, was the fact that the whole driving force behind this is we have to do this because if we don't do it first, the Germans will. And that's that leans into that. Well, you know, yes, this is a terrible and awful thing that we are the Manhattan. Right. This is this terrible and awful thing that we are endeavoring in. But if we don't do it, the bad guys will. And the problem is with that is that the bad guys looked at went eh, Jewish science and passed it. I mean, yeah, they that's 
the big reason we got Einstein in people is because of their anti-Semitism. Yeah. That too, and the fact that they essentially, whereas we had one essential team, more or less, working on the project, the Germans divided uh, into two separate projects, dividing their resources, were not sharing information uh, between themselves, which made it even harder for them to to further their advancement. But we're getting a little into the weeds. Yeah. The fact is, in most fictional settings, super weapons essentially exist as an artifact. They're a, a MacGuffin, a.k.a. a device, a means of moving, of advancing a story, of moving a setting along, of giving something to revolve a story around. But more often than not, they are ineffective. They don't exist, and they don't end up being what they were intended to be. Uh, they end up being ineffective, or they end up being a fallacy. Yeah. It's, and, you know, in a lot of ways, it's an allegory to our own world, which that's a whole other conversation. Allegory! We spend all this effort and time and resources into achieving this one thing that we think will make such a difference. When if we had spent all the time and effort and resources and spread it out, maybe we could have effectively had a lot more uh, successful outcome. If we would have devoted this time and energy to something else, would we even need to worry about having weapons like these? <laughs> if we don't build it, they will, and they will use it on us. That has been the justification for it since the beginning, and, you know... Uh -huh. It's that's a whole can of worms and a messy the mantra of the Cold War. Pretty much. The Cold War was the Cold War was dumb because we thought, oh, we're going to have to fight a war for this. While well, the Russians went, we can't fight a war. We're going to have to dominate them economically. Yeah. And neither of us ended up being right. Nope. And then the Russians shut themselves because because they don't do economic -y good. And it's all over. Just gone. Yeah, it was uh, the Cold War was basically a pissing match. I mean, yep. USA didn't know when the wall was going to come up, and we sure as shit did not know when it was going to come down. Yeah, but we sure put a lot of money into it, didn't we? Fuck yeah, we did. And that seems like a great place to start ending this episode. Yeah, we're getting too real. And I am about two of the proverbial three sheets to the wind. When's the next episode going to be released? Because I want to watch that. Uh, I think this next coming Thursday, I think. Yeah, the toilet episode. That'll be fun. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm curious to listen to that just to hear how retarded we get. Yeah, I want to hear it back again because, you know, being a few weeks out, I don't know, remember how much I remember of it. I just remember the long-winded speech you gave that was so, like, beautiful and, like, helpful for the human race. And it's like, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about toilets. <laughs> and I was just <laughs> like, oh, my God. Did you talk about, did you talk about how, how spacemen have to use a vacuum to pick up their shit and piss? I didn't know that was yeah. a thing, but that's fantastic. Yeah, I, I think we touch upon that. And the fact that uh, NASA spent like $12 million to invent a new space toilet because the old one only worked for men and not for women. Mm. Wow. Talk about money. You put your penis in the tube and piss. It was a urinal. Yeah. You know, except if you don't have, my wife says, if you don't have dangly bits, that doesn't work. Yeah. Yes. Sounds about right. Yeah. All right. Well, 
This has been an episode of The Ox Unplugged. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me saying insane shit that I have no concept uh, conceptual thought of. We basically just bat shit for an hour or so. Hey, uh, closing straw. Thanks for being a part, man. It was good yeah, to have you. I'm, it was a I'm, fun experience. I might show up again. I don't know. Hey, we're, we're welcome to have you. Yep. Yep. The more madness, the merrier. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I'm going to have one hell of a hangover. <laughs>